Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Now you see it, now you don't. Concerns about inflation and tightening went up in a poof of smoke this week, and all it took was a few more words from Fed Chair Jay Powell. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Whatever the market saw this week, they certainly liked it, as equities were up across the board with the S&P 500 ending the week at another record high, joining the Dow Jones and the Nasdaq in rising more than 2%, while the 10-year Treasury added 9 basis points and the yield curve overall steepened about 10 basis points. To give us a sense of how investors see this round trip with the markets of the last two weeks, welcome now Barbara Ann Bernard. She is founder of Wincrest Capital and Chris Aylman, Calster's chief investment officer. Welcome to both of you to Wall Street Week. So, Barbara Ann, let me start with you first. We had sort of two versions of at least what the market saw in what's going on. One is we got to be worried about inflation. It may be sticking around. The other is don't worry about it. It's a long way off. It's not the bigger problem, which was right. I'd categorize this market as all greed and no fear, and that's exactly what you saw this week. You know, if, if finance were taught the law of 72, which essentially means if you're annualizing your returns at 7% a year, you're going to double your money every 10 years. The PPI clocked 6.2%. That's really meaningful because by that same math, you're losing half of your purchasing power every 11.2 years. And this is what the market really needs to be focused on. Inflation is here to stay. It's not transitory. Powell tried to paint it as this inflation rat going through the anaconda. We all see the bulge and it's moving. Don't worry about it. I disagree because of the way inflation is calculated. It's a year-on-year number. So sure, cars being up 35, used cars being up 35% this year may be part of a reopening trade. Lumber being up may be part of a reopening trade. And people going back and stop you know, working on their porches, maybe why lumber's falling, but things like wages, wage hikes, that's sticky. That's not falling. And so even if you had 0% inflation next year, 
that's still a 6.2% increase in the cost of goods. So that, in my opinion, is permanent. Um, the other thing I would say is that Powell kept talking about an inclusive and equitable recovery. And what you've gone from is an administration that was obsessed with wealth creation to one that's really obsessed with wealth redistribution. That is inflationary as well. And you also look at the Biden administration, they're quite focused on decarbonization. That is gonna take a sustained investment and investment is inflationary. So for multiple reasons, I think inflation is here to stay. I think it's being underappreciated um, and it's something we really need to focus on. So Chris Elwin, give us your perspective. You are a long-term investor. You have a lot of money to invest. You also have a lot of obligations in the out years. At this point, are you adjusting your investment calculus because of the prospect of in increased inflation? We are, and I agree with Barbara Ann. I think that inflation is here to stay, and I think that it's subtle and creeping in. The way the government measures CPI is not effective at all. But if you ask the average person, they're feeling it. They see it in prices they're paying. And, and as she pointed out, it's going to be a wage pull as well as a price push on inflation. So I'm not sure when CPI will really pick it up, but I know we feel it and it's showing up in lots of different places. So as a long-term pension plan, as you put, David, with a 30-year horizon, inflation is the real threat. So we're actually increasing our inflation-sensitive assets, which is a whole basket of different things. Uh, and increasing it pretty steadily over time. We really want it to be a larger percentage of our portfolio. So Barbara, let me ask you about something. There was a little bit of a debate this week on Bloomberg between Savita Subramanian of Bank of America and Jonathan Golub from Credit Suisse about whether an investor should take into account the ability of a company to pass on increased costs to customers. Uh, is that doable? Because some people think it is something that is, is that one way to try to compensate for inflation we're expecting? Absolutely. I mean, I think you want to invest in companies with a high inflation pass-through rate. If you look at something like Amazon, it's nothing more than a price comparison website. If you're selling white goods through a price comparison website, it's really hard to pass through those costs. You know, you also had Whirlpool this, this, this week say they were trying to increase costs, but it's, it, you know, it's the price of steel is up substantially. It's going to hit margins. So I don't want to be in those companies. I want to be in companies with a very high inflation pass-through rate. Chris, let me ask a slightly different question. Another thing that happened this week was infrastructure. I mean, it's not there yet, but certainly the president announced a bipartisan agreement. It looks more likely than it did last week. I think it's fair to say that. Uh, to what extent does that affect an investor's perspective? If in fact, we get a substantial investment in infrastructure, what does that mean for the long-term growth of the economy? Well, David, I remember you and I talking about uh, infrastructure a couple of years yeah. ago. You watch Washington much closer than I do. So, yes, we got closer. Uh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. But longer term, I think it is an interesting area. Um, uh, you know, we really do think that that Internet service is an infrastructure type of investment, broadband uh, and the charging stations. That's reality. That That's going to be an investment opportunity. Uh, the government needs to step in and be in the first loss position. But I think you'll see private capital flow. There's a ton of capital, not just in the USA, but around the world. that's very interested in long, stable returns from an infrastructure play. And they love the USA because we have a rule of law. We have very clean rules and contracts, but they've got to see an opportunity where they can make a steady return out of it. So the USA always has that challenge in infrastructure. 
Municipal bonds are always the cheapest form of uh, cost of capital to build something. But let's face it, they're not good at maintaining it. So if you want to build something and maintain it, you've got to have some private capital in there. And that's going to be the challenge with this bill is figuring out with all this federal money coming in, how does private capital fit in that capital stack? Okay, our panel of Chris Elman of Calsters and Barbara Ann Bernard of Wincrest Capital will be staying with us as we turn to the question of ESG investing and how it could change our world. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing, is getting a lot of talk these days. And lately, it's getting some action as well with the engine number one dissident shareholder group upending the ExxonMobil board. And this week, launching an ETF to take the campaign into other boardrooms as well. Chris Aylman of Calsters and Barbara Ann Bernard of Wincrest Capital are still with us. So, Chris, I want to start with you because you had a little something to do with this, with engine number one. Give us your sense of why you backed these dissidents and what effect you think it's going to have on Exxon. David, we have been uh, having uh, engagement and dialogue with the integrated oil companies for several years now because we're really concerned about the future and the, and it's going to be lower carbon. And these companies have to change and adjust ExxonMobil has just been recalcitrant. They have just ignored shareholders for several years. Uh, New York Common made a run at them. Um, New York City, CalPERS, and they just rebuffed everybody. Uh, We felt that it's time to change uh, at the top. Uh, When Engine One approached us and said they're going to propose an alternative slate for a board, uh, we said we would get behind them. So when they announced in December, we came out the same day endorsing their uh, slate uh, and that was intentional. And we worked behind that, uh, uh, supporting their effort. We weren't proxy solicitors. What we were doing was really just calling our huge network of institutional investors in all the groups and raising this and making them aware. Uh, and I think in the end, it was Exxon's own actions of adding board members, suddenly talking about carbon sequestration. They really changed their tune because they realized that shareholders were unhappy and were frustrated. Uh, And look at that stock chart. It really turned around. Now, all the integrated oils have come up, but look at Exxon relative to the others. And I think the fact that we were finally engaging with them and making some traction with management was waking uh, the shareholders up and they cared. 
Uh, and it was a huge move. So I think the the announcement that we saw that we elected three, they elected three board members onto the ExxonMobil board is dramatic. And it really is going to signal a change from the top. Now their hard work begins. I don't want ExxonMobil to become a Kodak, uh, a blockbuster uh, video store, or I'll go back in my time, a warehouse record store. We want to see ExxonMobil actually exist 20 and 30 years from now but they've got to change and adapt to be able to do that. They can't just stick their head in, in oil and gas only. And I know we've received criticism of that because that's their main calling, but they can adapt and they can adjust and have a become an energy company. Uh, and we're gonna need hydrocarbons into the future, uh, but we're not gonna necessarily need to burn them. We're gonna use them for lubricants and other things. So they've got a product mix. They've got a very solid company. They have good research. I'm optimistic with a new fresh board at the top and a change of tone at the top that this company can can adjust and adapt into the future and survive as we're seeing with all the major oils having to do to recognize the future is lower and lower carbon emissions. Barbara, and what about it? You're an expert in ESG investing and something, I think of an enthusiast for it. Chris, what I think you did was great. And if you can change their capital allocations decisions and save your investment, Good on you. That is phenomenal. But what happened this week with the launch of another index tracking ETF, I don't think is the answer. There is no energy transition without an investor transition. So ESG 1.0 was buy the index and slightly overweight tech and underweight oil and gas and charge a premium for it. So we've gone from passive ESG to what I would now call passive aggressive ESG with engine 1.0. And while it's good, and I hope, you know, I, I wish them, I wish them well, I think ESG 2.0 is not engine number one. ESG 2.0 is the little engine that could, and the little engine that could invest in the renewables and the copper and nickel and lithium mines that are mining in sustainable ways that are going to drive this transition. It's investing in the ESG leaders who are decarbonizing and and are disrupting their models because we do need, as Chris says, their services but we need them with less carbon. So I don't think ESG 2.0 is about the index at all. I think it's about decarbonization and it takes investment, not divestment. If you listen to what yeah. they say, well, they wrote a report. They said, we need 50 trillion to solve climate change. 103 trillion has been committed for the UN principle of responsible investing. Two times what's needed. So the problem isn't the money. The problem is it's going to all the wrong places. And so, Chris, I'm so excited that institutional capital is finally starting to work together. But what I now that you've got directors and now that you've got disclosure, right. I think the next step is using your health to advocate for policy change. Because if you enact a tax on carbon, you're going to get the same, same result without having to jump up and down in the boardroom. When you change the incentive, you change behaviors. Chris, what do you say? No, Barbara Ann, I agree with you. I was just going to say that you know, I, and I think that the key is we have been making very large sustainable and long-term investments. We've been allocating more money to more sustainable companies. What we're trying to do is to recognize that everybody, whether it's an index, and, and there's just still a lot of money in index funds, but that all the companies, if they want to survive in the future, have to change and adapt. Um, they can't just stay stuck in the current methodology. And, I, and you're right, David, we've got to take carbon out of the atmosphere. We've got to change the way we get energy, the way we transport, 
uh, and especially the way we do agriculture. And then ultimately certain things like, as we've talked, concrete, steel manufacturers have to find new, better ways, less carbon intensive ways to do that. So for us, it's, it's a holistic investment, including our index, not excluding it, but including it. And it is active management. I've said for a while that I think of ES and G, Climate change is the one active decision people have to make, and they have to make it now. Right. Because in the next 10 to 20 years, the world is going to radically change, and you can't just sit on an index and wait. You need to invest and make active decisions ahead of that to create, capture those opportunities. So yeah. we think that the changes is inevitable. We've got a big sustainable portfolio that we already invest uh, over eight billion in new sustainable right. solutions, and we're going to increase that over time. So this is a truly great discussion on ESG. I want both of you to come back and have it at greater lengths because we have more to talk about. But I want to throw you a curveball right now. I'll go to you, Barbara Ann, because we now know that GameStop, that meme stock, has been added to the Russell 1000. That's just happened at the end of the week. So what do you make of these meme stocks? Are they changing the entire index investing scene? Oh, goodness. You know, I don't, I, I love to short, but I don't get involved in those. These, <laughs> it's not a good investment, right? And so it, it, it's heartbreaking to see companies like that get in an index. We all know it's not worth what it is to what, what it's trading for today. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I'm not, a, I'm not for passive investing. There you go. I really appreciate this panel. It's been terrific. It's our panel of Chris Elman. He's Kalsher's CIO and Barbara Ann Bernard, CEO and founder of Windcrest Capital. Coming up, so many ways to take a company public, from IPOs to direct listings to SPACs. Which one is right for you? We ask Stacey Cunningham, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. SPACs. Companies are turning to blank check mergers to go public more than ever before. Just this year, there have been more than 550 SPACs so far, which is more than all of 2020, when more than $83 billion flooded into the space. Here's James Zelter of Apollo. So with the, with the SPAC product really gaining emergence in the equity markets because of what's going on in the IPO process, you know, is our, is our ecosystem of clients and borrowers our, our SPAC issuers? We want to make sure that we have the tools to respond to them. But the SPAC boom is seeing some bumps in the road. A blank check company might get you public, but thus far the returns after you get the deal done haven't been all that impressive. One index that tracks SPACs is down 20% since its February high. Fading trading volumes and the possibility of tighter monetary conditions are taking a toll on companies that went public through blank check mergers. Bubble is not just something about one stock rising. It's a concept. It's about the fact that everyone believes in some new, new thing, that this concept is here to stay and about to change the world. So it is, uh, as I say, a good idea gone too far. That's Rushir Sharma from Morgan Stanley Investment Management. SPACs provide a shortcut to the stock market, which businesses seeking to go public are eager to take. On the other side of the equation, investors in SPACs have the chance to score a big gain, but know that they'll get their money back if the SPAC doesn't meet its deadline in getting a big deal done. Here's Social Capital's Shamath Palahapatiya. It evens the playing field. It democratizes access to high-growth companies. How? Because it allows retail and it allows long-tail institutional investors 
<clears throat> folks that may not have necessarily been tier one hedge funds, now they can also play. Regulators have struggled to keep up with the SPAC craze, and now the SEC is taking a closer look, at least at the disclosure issues. Investors in blank check companies give cash to sponsors before they know what company they will be investing in. It's really making sure that the sponsor who's behind that is fully disclosing their uh, take on it. These are very expensive, dilutive products. That's SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Another concern with SPACs is that companies can pitch to investors based on their forward-looking financials, which isn't allowed in a traditional IPO. Again, here's Gensler. And it's those disclosures ensuring that the retail investors get the right disclosures and are protected and somebody's not misleading them. And secondarily, that they're participating just like the, the institutional investors. So how do you know which way of going public is right for you? Well, we turn now to the woman really at the center of this process. She is Stacy Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Stacy, thank you so much for being with us on Wall Street Week. There are so many different ways, IPOs and direct listings and SPACs now. What determines which is the best way to take a given company public? It depends on the company. If you want to raise money the traditional way, you might consider using an IPO going out on the roadshow with your bankers who are holding your hand throughout the process and, and working to get that established investor base that you want uh, for the long term. And that's the reason why many companies continue to choose the IPO process is they want to choose that investor base through the allocation process. If you want to have more control around timing and price and work with a counterparty, a SPAC might make more sense for you uh, as an issuer. And so you, you there's less dependency on market conditions with the SPAC process. You have a little bit more control and then a direct listing really takes the elements of, of democratizing access to that first day. All investors are on a level playing field with a direct listing. So retail and institutional alike can just enter their, their interest and the market prices that opening. And so if you're focused on cost of capital and having equal access to all investors, that's been a real driver for many of those companies choosing uh, a direct listing. Another element of the, the direct listing that's been interesting to companies is being able to provide forward-looking guidance. And so if it's a company that uh, wants to talk about their future projections, they've been able to do so within a, a direct listing. They were also relying on that within a SPAC, but the SEC put out some guidance in April about the warrant accounting and SPACs and about that future guidance because it wasn't, uh, companies have been relying on the, the a safe harbor provision that is typical for mergers to be able to provide that future guidance. And the SEC said, wait a minute, that might not apply here because as a SPAC, you're really becoming a public company for the first time. And so th those, that, those were elements that are being uh, slowed down the SPAC market a bit and you're starting to pick them up. The important thing is, is companies have choices now and they're looking at what is the right path to the public markets for them. At the end of the day, no matter which path they choose, they become a public company and investors are going to price their, their, their stock in the public markets exactly the same way. Thank you so much for being with us on Wall Street Week. That's Stacey Cunningham. She is the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks, David. Coming up, we get the take of our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, on antitrust policy and whether the Biden administration just might be headed in the wrong direction. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. And to wrap up the week, we are joined once again by our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we've had a lot of infrastructure weeks over the last few years. Maybe this one really will be infrastructure week because President Biden came out of the White House and announced a bipartisan agreement, at least on a framework uh, on infrastructure, that has about $580 billion in new money. What do you make of what was agreed to? I was glad to see it. The investment's overdue. The investment will strengthen our economy. The investment will help support employment of groups that have had uh, trouble. The investment will show that America is able to come together uh, and uh, do things. And the investment was paid for. Uh, I was particularly gratified to see for the first time a bipartisan congressional agreement recognizing that if we do what we need to do as a country and enforce the tax law better, give the IRS the resources it needs to go back to the strength it once had, that we can raise meaningful amounts of revenue. And I think all of that bodes uh, very well for the future. At the same time, Larry, uh, we quickly learned that it's a one-step and a two-step process. There's a little bit of ambiguity here about that second step. But certainly Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said we're not going anywhere with this agreement on bipartisan bill without having the more partisan approach that has the other part of infrastructure, what the White House calls the family part of the infrastructure. How essential is that second component? Look, uh, we need to make human investments in this country. We need, above all, to be investing in early childhood education uh, for our kids. We talk about STEM, but how can we, how can our kids believe we're serious about STEM when huge fraction of the chemistry labs in the country have uh, air conditioning and heating systems and uh, air air systems that uh, don't work? So. We need more investment than is in this bill. This bill is a beginning. It is not an end. And so the aspiration to much more is, in my view, uh, completely correct. Um, Will it all fit together and happen? Here's what I know. We weren't going to get to the end of the race unless we got out of the blocks. And we surely got out of the blocks in a really important way uh, here. And... I'm glad uh, I'm glad to see that. And I hope we'll find an approach that will pay for the spending uh, that we need, that will recognize its benefits to the economy in a clear way, that will make sure that we're investing in what, after all, is our most precious national resource uh, 
our uh, people, that we'll be taking steps necessary in terms of the global issues like the prevention of climate change and like the mitigation of future uh, pandemics. There is a lot that is left to do that should be supported. And the question is, are we going to find ways of doing it that are carefully uh, thought out, that are disciplined, that are involving the private sector where it can make uh, a major contribution. And I hope that's what we'll see going forward. But I'm gratified by the progress we've seen. Uh, Larry, this may have been infrastructure week, but antitrust is a near runner-up as a practical matter. We had five bills get through the Judiciary Committee about fundamentally redoing our antitrust laws to really go after, I think it's fair to say, big tech to a large degree. We also have a new chair of the CFTC in Lena Khan who has made a career thus far of really challenging some of the big tech and the more fundamentally the antitrust approach, the overall approach to the question. What do you make of this? Uh, do we need to be rethinking our antitrust approach in light of what's happened with big tech? I'm halfway uh, with the critics. A new economy needs uh, new thinking and uh, new approaches. Uh, the old concepts weren't designed with issues like uh, platform companies uh, in mind. But I part company completely with uh, the legal scholars, uh, scholars who frankly in many cases are not very familiar with uh, economic reasoning uh, in its in intricacy, the people who call themselves neo-Brandeisians and want to go back to what Justice Brandeis said in 1916. Ultimately, an efficient economy that serves consumers well is the right criteria for antitrust policy. Any attempt to change the goal of antitrust policy to be protecting competitors rather than protecting competition, I believe will do grave damage to uh, the American economy. So yes, we need new approaches, possibly new uh, laws, but they need to be ultimately grounded in an economic approach that is based on having a more functional and efficient economy. And the idea that big is bad per se, or the idea that big should be broken up just so that smaller companies have a better chance uh, to compete even when they are less efficient. You read the traditional antitrust decisions of the 1960s, and they are a horror show in terms of their economic illiteracy where companies make efforts to defend themselves by saying that they're inefficient and therefore they're not going to win out over competitors in competition. That is the way to American failure. And we must make sure that we don't go back to that point. That is no argument for indiscriminate corporate power. That is no argument for accepting what may, may be uh, abusive practices. But let's have a new uh, antitrust for a new economy, not go back to failed and replaced doctrines of the past. 
So, Lori, let's conclude with a quick round of summer says here. Uh, number one, we had Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, go up on Capitol Hill. She was testifying on her budget, actually, and she said she's fairly confident that inflation would be back down under 5% by the end of the year. What was your reaction? Gosh, Dave, <laughs> that anybody was talking about 5% would have been inconceivable uh, three or four months ago when the consensus was in a completely... Uh, different uh, place. My guess is that at the end of the year, inflation will, for this year, come out pretty close uh, to 5%. And it would surprise me if we had 5% inflation with no effect on inflation uh, expectations. It could go either way with respect to 5%. I'd be happy, happy to take the bet on over at uh, 4.5%. Four and a half percent, but I think the real comment is that it was only three weeks ago when acknowledgments that inflation would reach three percent uh, this year were treated as significantly news uh, newsworthy. So this is in line with what I have to say. I have predicted on your show almost every week that inflation is going to surprise on the high side relative to expectations, and I'm afraid that continues to be my view. So, Larry, while we're on the second half, looking at the second half of the year, let's talk about markets overall. What are you expecting? More turbulence, less turbulence? I think more. Uh, you know, I, for the crisis in some ways that I grew up with uh, was the Japanese bubble in uh, the late 1980s. And what was interesting was that there were a lot of people who were anxious about the Japanese market, and then it survived and it kept going and kept rising, and then more people got anxious and it grew. And at a certain point, most of the anxious had thrown in the towel, and that's when we had uh, really an epic uh, financial collapse in Japan. And Japan isn't, Japan's market isn't anywhere near back to where it was uh, 30 years, uh, 30 years ago. I don't think we're going to get anything like that in the United States. But I think there's a point uh, there when warriors have been disproved a few times and people are saying we're in a new era, that's when you need to be very careful. So my guess is we'll see higher rates over the next six months in the second half of the year. And with those higher rates, they'll probably be uh, more... Uh, more turbulence. Uh, I was glad to see the Fed uh, move in a quite significant way to reflect worries where I'd been concerned and others had been concerned that they were behind the curve. But I think we've got a lot of processing uh, ahead of us in markets. Okay, thank you once again to Larry Summers, our special contributor. And of course, he's a professor at Harvard. Finally, one more thought. And this one hits close to home. New York is, after all, the home of Wall Street, that location in lower Manhattan named for a wall the Dutch built in the 17th century to keep out the British and pirates. And let's be frank, I'm not sure how successful they were on either of those. New York has always been centered in business and in commerce. It's always been open to the world, particularly the commercial world. And so when the pandemic hit and commerce and imports, whether of goods or of tourists, shut down overnight, New York was hit particularly hard. This week, New York took an important step toward coming back as it gathered at the polls for the first time since the pandemic. 
This first post-pandemic election was to choose the candidates for mayor and controller and the rest of the city leadership. We don't know the results yet. We won't know for some weeks to come because of that ranked choice voting we've learned so much about. But we do know that Wall Street will have a new mayor and one that sees the enormous potential for growth. So once again, it's time for New York to reinvent itself. And whatever our political persuasion, Global Wall Street has to be rooting it on. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.